0: Well, today I'm super excited because we have rheumatologist Dr. George Munoz back onto the show, and today we're going to talk about the benefits of sensible exercise. Now, we learned a lot from Dr. Munoz on his first appearance on this show, and today I have uh, I've invited him back because he has a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience in the area of exercise, and we're going to learn about the benefits of exercise, how to do it properly, how to prevent injuries, and how to do it safely when we have inflammatory arthritis and health challenges. Now, Dr. Munoz continues to amaze me with his credential. He studied martial arts for 10 years with a grandmaster specialist, and he is a well-rounded athlete and can bench press, 300 pounds, deadlift 250 pounds at the youthful age of 66, he was a defensive back and running back at, uh, at, at school, ran track, and he believes fully in activity and exercise and fitness. And it's a lifelong passion of his and a state of mind. And he recommends it to not only his family, but also to his patients. He takes care of elite athletes throughout their career as a physician and also helps them on their healing, their training and injury prevention and arthritis prevention. So what a treat to have you back, Dr. Munoz. Thanks so much, Clint. It's always an honor. I
1: look, always look forward to spending time talking with you and, and sharing hopefully something that helps uh, one or many of your listeners.
0: Well, thank you. I'm sure we will. My listeners know very well that I'm a huge proponent of exercise and without moving my body in quite a, you um, know, quite ambitious way at all times throughout my uh, since my diagnosis, then I would not be anywhere near the physical state that I am today. It's been one of the backbones of of maintaining a good quality good quality uh, life uh, when you have an inflammatory disease. As I'm sure you've seen with so many of your patients,
1: absolutely. And and you know there are not that many global uh, truisms in medicine that you know, you start to encompass and think about what you would ask, recommend, or or really tell people to go ahead and do as far as health, their personal health or health of others. But there is no pill. There's no pill, no medicine, not yet. I don't know if ever that can Reduce your mortality that simultaneously reduces your chance of heart attack, stroke, and cancer. Reducing your mortality all simultaneously. There is no medicine, no pill, only exercise. Therefore, I would say it's the 1A of the most important thing that we can do for ourselves, and to help others do as far as health goes, no matter what the problem is, it doesn't matter. While nutrition is highly important, you know, when people could say, well, you know, it's nutrition is first or, you know, that's 1A. For me, it's exercise. Mm-hmm. 1A for me is exercise based on So many examples and for our population of people that we're talking about specifically with autoimmune and inflammatory conditions or even for people who don't have specifically autoimmune conditions but have degenerative arthritis, which is really more than half of the people on the planet because low back pain is the most common physical ailment globally and certainly in the U.S., it's the one that causes the most problem as far as work absenteeism uh, and the cost is um, uh, mind-boggling so anything we can do to help our core our balance our strength our flexibility is a plus 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 plus
0: yeah and we'll go into each one of those in detail today we'll cover each one of those topics And I just want to make sure that there's no exclusions here. Do you think there's anyone listening who thinks I'm excluded from that blanket statement?
1: So, you know, thinking hard and long, we're going to say that there are caveats and situations where exercise is more of a situation where greater care And more supervision is required, such as in convalescence, convalescence from a heart attack, uh, scenarios like that. But even then, you know, exercise is going to be recommended. It's just how early, how much. Um, So it's not that it's um, excluded. It's more of the when and how much. Um, un, under proper care. Certain neuromuscular conditions, one in particular that I'm thinking of, myasthenia gravis, which is an autoimmune uh, neuromuscular junction disorder that uh, results in fatigue with repetitive use. So, since exercise is usually a repetitive action, that one needs to be handled again under supervision the right amount for the right amount of duration under the care usually of a neurologist or a physical therapist who's attuned to that scenario in joint reconstruction we have pt and rehab that becomes essential Mm -hmm. Mm so i'm going to say that exercise is critical even before the surgery in fact maybe more important before the surgery to prepare for the surgery and that could be true actually of any surgery that's planned that's elective surgery yeah to make sure that we're in optimal health so there's very few permanent situations that exercise i would say oh no that banned no there might be scenarios where you know we have to limit watch or um supervise
0: right yeah I love it. Well, let me give you my summary in a short story, and then you can comment on that towards whether or not you 've seen this with other patients. I when I was uh, in my first few years after diagnosis uh, in a terrible state of inflammation and not suitably controlled from any angle. My diet was wrong i wasn 't exercising well I, I was not put on to medications because I refused, not because of my Not because of the recommendations, and my disease was uncontrolled, and my left elbow and left knee were so severely affected that um, within three, maybe four years of diagnosis, I had to have a synovectomy on my left elbow because it completely locked up. Now, the point of this story is that throughout the pain period of uh, you know a few years there, with that left elbow being very sore, the medical Guidance that I was given was if it hurts, don't move it. You know, it's sore. You better leave it alone. Well, when that ended in surgery, and then later on, I developed some inflammation in the right elbow. Goodness, I got to tell you, I moved that thing like crazy. And that right elbow uh, never needed the surgery, uh, even though it was afflicted by the inflammation at the time quite substantially. It benefited so much from the exercise that it almost became dependent on. I knew if I stopped moving it, that the inflammation in that joint was going to continue and progress. So I have example of two. The left, don't move it, surgery. The right, move it like crazy and get a pretty good outcome. So is this typical? Because I know people with inflammatory arthritis, they're afraid to move the joint if it's got some inflammation in it.
1: That that's such a, an instructive uh, case and history that personal history that you've shared with us, Clint. That is uh, a great starting point about when to exercise, when not to exercise. So with inflammation, I think one of the key things that we need to do is to do the type of activity and motion and, and exercise that. Are not traumatic um, that that have what we call passive range of motion and some limited um, isometric strengthening, as opposed to pounding exercise like running, which is pound pound pound. So if you have a knee problem, a hip problem, or an ankle problem, pounding is not a a, a great thing to do. However um strengthening exercises of the hip flexor of the side of the hip adductors of the front of the thigh quadriceps of the back of the the top leg the hamstring all supports the knee um, and doesn't pound on the knee doesn't cause damage to the knee as well as moving it range of motion both passively meaning somebody's moving it for us or we could move it passively like say with a rope or a band because ropes and bands are are little tools that we can uh have with us travel with easy to use um, becomes one reason not to have an excuse so there's no place to exercise we can exercise anywhere so doing those passive range of motions those passive exercises uh allows us to really take advantage and prevent joints from fusing and joints from freezing up. And that's what you exhibited with the joint you didn't move, which uh, then creates, in in traditional Chinese medicine, um, it causes qi stagnation. And qi stagnation is uh, one of the causes of pain, where energy flow through the meridian channels is is not happening. So, you know, whether we're in a Western uh, frame of mind or in an Eastern paradigm, it doesn't matter. Uh, we are energetic beings and the flow of energy is just one aspect of our health um, and the balance of that energy Um, of yin and yang, is another measure of our health. If we get out of balance, then um, that's when stagnation of energies occur or when we begin to develop clinical symptoms. So passive range of motion, assisted active range of motion, someone else like a physical therapist helping us or a trainer, Mm -hmm. uh, using devices like ropes and bands or machines, Uh, All separate, but we're protecting the joint uh, within the motion and we're not pounding it. And so, Mm. those are are, that's part of uh, activity with joint protection in mind.
0: Mm, Yeah, I love it. You know, with my, you mentioned knees, and uh, one thing I found was very helpful for clearing inflammation in my knee was uh, just sitting on a stationary bike with a very low resistance. And so, it's not entirely passive. Like you said, um, but it's close to it. you know, you get momentum, don't you, and the other leg is contributing, and you start to build up quite a lot of momentum, and you can get to a point where it's it's quite passive after a while if you're just sitting on the machine and allowing those uh, range of motions to occur without really uh, putting a lot of force through the knee, and there's no pounding, no impact. so I thought I'd give that as an example of something that uh you know dovetails with what you're saying.
1: Yes. And so, you know, for home exercise and, you know, if you're thinking of getting any equipment or if you belong to a gym, although right now it's been a little bit more challenging getting to the gym, although gyms are opening up, you know, the stationary bicycle, recumbent stationary bicycle, even a Peloton, uh, you know, and I don't endorse any specific equipment, but there's many types of uh, stationary bicycles where the ergonomics, the setup is quite beneficial. And yes, we don't have to use a lot of tension. Just the range of motion helps get the joint, you know, lubricated for lack of a better, you know, term. And the auto-regulation, the body's ability to heal itself is still there. And the motion is allowing the energy to flow and the chi to flow. And we have a tendency to self-right, you know. It's only when we can't that outside interventions are, are needed. And sometimes if we're doing these things, less of the outside intervention is needed than if we weren't.
0: Mm. Yes. So let's say the that... Um... A rheumatologist or a general practitioner has the same degree of three hundred and sixty uh, degree awareness of how a patient can benefit uh, or improve their situation, and do recommend exercise. I know that you do, obviously, in your clinic, given it's the you know one of the A one things that you uh, you think are beneficial. So. Let's say a uh, doctor has said, you need to exercise. We've, you've covered some excellent ways already if you have inflammation in the joints. Uh, is there some more to it? Great question. And, and so the answer is yes. And, you know,
1: mind boggling. I was never taught this in medical school. I wasn't taught a thing about exercise, how much, when, how. Which are the, the three concepts of any prescription. So when a doctor goes to prescribe a medicine, it's the medicine, right? the frequency, mm-hmm. the strength or the intensity of the exercise, and for how long should I take this medicine, doctor? One week, three days, a month? Or refill times 12 till I tell you otherwise, 12 months till I tell you otherwise. So, depending on our health status and what's going on, our age, whether we have exercised our whole lives or not, whether we're newcomers, whether we're convalescing from psychological reasons, depression, anxiety, or physical reasons, a surgery, or an injury, or an illness or an accident or not convalescing but have never exercised there is a tempo and a prescription for you in general we're going to use common sense but i ask my colleague physicians to th- to look at their patient in front of them their person who they're going to write a prescription for and also for the individual person to clue in their physician as to their Mindset of what they think they 're capable of to start and to minus it maybe by twenty percent and to and to go slower because it 's not a race. this is a marathon because the concept is lifestyle. this is a lifestyle activity along with healthy eating patterns we 're not going to do diets we 're going to do healthy lifestyle interventions of which proper And healthy nutrition is one that fits the exercise capability and the intensity of the individual. So I I like to uh, recommend that people exercise three to four days a week and a goal to strive for according to American Heart Cardiology, American Cancer Society, Uh, osteoporosis foundation i look at those recommendations as well as for individuals with potential for uh, heart disease uh, prevention and so the recommendations when you look at them globally looks like people are recommending about 45 to 60 minutes minimally three times a week And to build up to that. But if you're able to go an hour, four to five days a week, it doesn't mean you have to go intensely, but really everything counts. And as of recent, we don't even have to do it continuously. That is to say, that if we are limited by time for whatever reason, and you can only have 10 or 15 minutes in the morning, but afterwards in the day you have another half hour that that's 45 minutes that counts and we should not ignore and poo-poo the opportunity to exercise 5 10 or 15 minutes it counts it's all part of it so the amount of time 30 to 60 minutes i like 45 in the middle the number three is the minimum okay and the recommendations are based on how much per month, based on those time limits. Okay. So if we can do more or less close to 180 minutes per week, you know, that, that's gonna come out to about 12 hours a month. You know, so 10 to 12 hours, how intense? You know, well, if you're just starting, it's gonna it has to be mild. Yep. Because we don't want you injured. No injuries. Okay. Soreness is not an injury. Injury is when there's a, a biomechanical problem that could include an, a, a, a tendonitis, a bursitis, a strain, a tear, partial tear, okay, or a stress fracture. So we want to avoid all those things. But With more intensity, the risk of developing a bursitis or tendinitis can occur, but we don't want to get into tears, stress fractures, Mm. compression fractures, that we want to avoid those. And there's no reason to have that. That's when we start getting careless and overdoing things without proper technique or perhaps with proper guidance or supervision. So... The intensity should start mild. If you're someone who exercises regularly, you know, we, we're all going to warm up. You already know this. You're, you begin to understand your body, a proper warm up. What about stretching, Doc? Yeah, stretching. Interesting concept, stretching, because it's changed. When I started as an athlete, stretching was static. Now we do dynamic stretching. What does that mean? It means we move as we stretch. We don't just stretch cold. And so there are certain movements. You could see this on YouTube's uh, proper way to stretch the the Achilles tendon, the back of the calf while you're walking and moving, as opposed to going up to the side of a tree, putting your foot up and, and leaning forward when you're cold. No, don't do that. That's how we create micro tears, and pull muscles when we're not warm. So actually walking, light jog, dynamic stretching while we're moving, and then begin the exercise, whatever it is, whether it's weights, swimming, biking, walking, jogging, or doing some type of strength training, whether it's machines, body weight, or uh, bands okay and then the cool down period after we finish you know we should always allow at least 5 minutes to cool down and then do the classic stretches mm-hmm. to realow our, our to rebalance the muscles that we just used so that we're walking in a balanced way uh because we do get out of balance uh that's part of what causes low back pain Hamstring, gluteal pain, and periodically to get you know massage as part of our injury prevention. Good for mind, body, spirit, and keep the ability to exercise ongoing. You know, uh, using ice for for any area after we exercise that's a little sore. Things like arnica gel. Over-the-counter, tiger Balm, mm. stretching, and pressure, acupressure of an area that's sore. Find it and just massage it. You won't break. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> just massage it. And you could take ice and massage it, like, just with a, a little cup of water. Yeah. Put it in a freezer, the little Dixie cup that your little one would like. Yeah. Take them out you peel off the the paper and then and then everybody can just massage the area that hurts fairly firmly and that's the biggest healer to any soreness and to preventing injuries so uh cryotherapy ice massage and then for your more elite athletes or active athletes your 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 listeners that are there are athletes that are that are very active population, different population, okay, they're working out three to five days a week moderately to significantly strenuous. They may compete or not. They're running, you know, anywhere from uh, three to 15 miles a week or biking anywhere from one to three hours on certain amounts of time. They're doing cross training. They're, They're a different group. Those people Need to get into an ice cryo bath Mm -hmm. at least once a week after an intense workout to prevent injuries and to induce healing and decrease cytokines, IL 6 and TNF, that are released during normal, strenuous exercise. Right. I'm going to stop there. We mentioned a lot, but I gave you a big overview. And now you pick the aperitif based
0: on. (laughs) What caught my greatest interest was the use of rubbing uh, the ice against the muscle pain. And, and when you said that is the greatest healer or you know, the greatest relief of, of pain. Now, I want to talk about that a bit more, if you don't mind. There was a book that I read many years ago, and I can't remember the author's last name, but the name of the book was called Pain Erasure or Eraser. And it was Bonnie something. And the whole book was pretty much. Find a spot in the body that hurts and put pressure against it with a thumb for seven seconds and then release and then do it again. And the whole concept was push against things that hurt, right? Now, and so I'm all on board with that and I've been doing that for a long time. My, I've always had this perhaps limiting belief around cold therapy. And if you don't mind, um, my limiting belief is that. I have this concept of healing through blood flow, and if we're putting ice either sitting in an ice bath which I've never done, or applying ice to something directly, we are cutting off or we're reducing the blood flow. so where have I got my wires crossed here as to how that heals?
1: no, you don't have your wires crossed at all it, it it's con- it is counterintuitive, so it, it's not that your wires are crossed it it's simply. I'll I'll give you my um, simple-minded thinking on it, but it's panned out in my 50 years of activity in, in sports that that is, that is a truism uh, of ice and of its redemptive qualities. So the simple-minded concept I have, which I've come to have, is that there's local inflammation and it's hot even if it doesn't look hot but sometimes it does look hot sometimes it does look swollen sometimes it does get red and basically we're applying the the yang to the mm. yin okay mm. and just rebalancing and it takes cold to overcome the heat it's like the kids with the with their little game you know rock scissors paper shoot you know it's like i can't get the hierarchy there of, of who's winning when but but when energy, again, when energy is blocked and there is heat, then it is cold and pressure that wins. Mm. So, you know, we, we have, we don't have to do rock, paper, scissors, shoot on that one. Um, but ice, it's ice, 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 ice. So it, it has to do more with that, you know? And then the ultimate thing is it works, you know? And if I, I couldn't come up with an explanation. I would just say, you know, Clint, I don't know, but it it just seems to work. And it's worked in so many instances of minor injuries, fairly major injuries, and it works quickly. And if we have a new injury, that's when it works the best. Mm -hmm. You know, and we do a particular exercise, everything's good, but there was one movement where we felt the tweak, and then after we finished the exercise, wherever that tweak was, now I have a problem, ice to the rescue. Ice to the rescue. Many times it's a tendon micro-tear that gets inflamed and that has poor blood supply to heal, yet it is injured. And being able to put pressure and stretch it, and make it cold seems to have a rehabilitative healing uh, effect it, it you know i i don't know that we can fully explain it yeah but it is clearly a truism whenever we have repetitive injuries like pounding injuries it's very very good if we have a brand new injury with warmth and swelling it's very very good if we're preventing injury from overuse of a shoulder say a uh, rotator cuff elbow tendinitis hip bursitis uh, knee meniscal irritation or 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 ligamentous injury Achilles tendinitis all very helpful or acute muscle spasm you know it's a, it's going to require a combination of physical myofascial release massage stretching and cryotherapy. So when do we use heat might be what people are saying. He's talking about ice, ice, ice. I thought heat was better. So, you know, heat in general is better with chronic things and ice in general is better with something new and acute. Mm. There's a truism.
0: Great. Okay. Okay. Love it. Thank you. You mentioned about preventing injuries earlier on. Is there a way that we can... uh some kind of evaluation where we can uh, know whether or not we're likely to be susceptible to injury?
1: So so there is, and, and I have a dear friend, he's a, a physical therapist, uh, Frank Musumeci. Maybe one of these days we'll get him uh, on one of our podcasts. He's a great person, uh, quite a, quite a, enjoy speaking on, on this topic. And you would think as a rheumatologist, having studied in some of the most elite programs, you know, in the country that the biomechanical evaluation would have been one of the things that was covered. I never heard the term previously until I heard it uttered in that way from Frank Musumeci's mouth years ago. And it, it was Quite an awakening and a dawning of like, why weren't we taught this? Yet I found myself understanding that I have been doing a biomechanical evaluation on my patients on my own, in my own way, getting better at it over time, but never really taught a simple, structured method to do it. And basically, what a physician or a practitioner skeletal physician or skeletal practitioner like physical therapist chiropractor orthopedic surgeon physiatrist neurologist rheumatologist anybody who touches the individual from a skeletal perspective needs to have this assessment tool in their mind and in their little bag of goodies of how to evaluate someone how are they moving how do they sit? How do they stand? What is their static posture like? And what is their dynamic movement like? Is it free-flowing or is it out of balance? Do they have an antalgia gait, meaning the way they move and walk is not free-flowing? Ah, uh, yes, there is an antalgia gait. Where is it originating from? Mm. And this is, brings up a, a concept of chain of injury, chain of injury. So a toe could cause neck pain or a headache if the foot doesn't move properly, the gait heel-to-toe stride isn't normal and isn't on the outside of the foot. That can put stress on one side of the knee, the inside which puts pressure on the outside of the hip, which puts pressure on the other side of the low back, the right SI and sacrum, which travels up the spine. Now the spine is trying to get rebalanced. So there's some spasm all the way up, all the way up to the neck. Once you get the neck involved though, tension and pain takes over and then you can get headaches, visual complaints, jaw pain. So a toe can cause problems all the way up away from where the person is exhibiting. So that's what we call the chain of injury and deconstructing where does the pain originate from actually, from the dynamic mechanical perspective. So I just gave you an example.
0: Now that's fantastic. And I'm sure everyone listening is doing what I'm doing and thinking about their own bodies. And if we walk on the front of our foot or outside of the foot, and uh, I know that I I have a uh, reduced arch on my left foot, and that my ankle rolls in a little on the uh uh it's on the and and that exactly as you said it causes a little pain on the inside of the knee,
1: mm-hmm. which then causes an imbalance in the stride, which causes the contralateral hip to yeah. work harder, which then your right SI is trying to rebalance, and then the chain of potential biomechanical imbalance yeah. can become either corrected with an orthotic or proper rebalancing or becomes the source of a chronic problem, chronic low back pain, mid back, neck, and I describe the rest. So, yeah. you know, this is true for everybody. Okay. So uh, part of the biomechanical evaluation, since you brought it up, is to look at the foot and to see, does the person have an adequate arch? If not, they're going to need orthotics. Okay. And these can be customized. Luckily now they're much more affordable than years ago. Um, They can be scanned and by 3D technology, you know, have a very good Orthotic mm. that can be used for daily use as well as for athletic use and exercise, mm. depending on the type of athletic activity, you know it becomes more and more important. So for track, it's very important. For jumping, it's important. For you know uh, stop and go exercises, tennis, you know any paddle exercise is very important. Um, for your skiers in in the boot, it becomes important because every pressure. I'm a double black by diamond skier, by the way. Um, the, um, the, the boot sensitivity and the amount of pressure tra- that is transmitted simply by pronation or supination is affected by whether the orthotic is allowing direct contact to the edges of the boot, which translates to the edge of the ski. So just giving you some ideas that the concept of biomechanical balance is is, is important for really any sport. Uh, we probably underestimate it and underappreciate it. And really, for my youth sports, you know, track and field, soccer, American football, rugby, basketball, um, the basketball player in general. Okay, tall, thin. Uh, many of them with a long, uh, big foot. Uh, many of them with pest planus, meaning flat arches. Same with um, my American football linemen, my linemen, big 300-pound, 250-pound guys with pronated knees coming together, and the arch collapsed. So we orthotics for them to prevent injury and arthritis in their knees and hips as they get older, Within their sport. So, this is also important for arthritis prevention in the foot and ankle, in the knee, and in the hip.
0: Mm. Let me ask you this. Uh, Obviously, you've mentioned the orthotics a lot, and I know that that's uh, something that you've seen work a lot, or you wouldn't recommend it. However, uh, you know, always one to seek as something, uh, a natural solution as much as possible. My physical therapist uh, has suggested that if I were to you know, use one of these uh, loop elastics and sit on the edge of a chair and then uh, develop a lot of tension between the two ankles and then to move the arch away. So it's not rolling in where it tends to, uh, to go with the ankle, but move it away from the body. So you're building strength in the outer part of the foot and trying to raise the arch with each motion long term do you see that that may have some benefits in reversing some of the um the situation
1: yes i do and so i'm I'm gonna say that uh we as western civilized people have brought this on ourselves um by wearing shoes because we did not wear shoes. We, um, so the people I met in the Amazon, they didn't have shoes. I tried to walk barefoot like they did, and I didn't last two steps. Okay. <laughs> My westernized, hypersensitive, soft skin felt every little pebble as though it were a razor blade, and yet they're walking through everything and anything, and there's no problem. Their strength of their feet it was equally amazing, and this is who they are. And it affects their biomechanics all the way up. So the short answer to what you asked is yes, and it, and we should not wear flip-flops, beach flip-flops, as an ongoing all-day habitual footwear, because all it does is weaken the midfoot to the opposite of what you asked me whether the exercise would strengthen. It does the opposite. Mm -hmm. So it messes up the foot, it weakens the arch, it weakens the muscle, and it's causing a pandemic of this problem, further increasing the incidence of low back pain that was already at a sky-high rate. This is just aggravating it now in younger people because I notice that my athletes of all ages, youth, high school, collegiate, and the pros are in flip-flops. So I've taken it upon myself through education, cajoling and prodding to suggest to them that what they're doing is going to affect them adversely. And that if they're going to do it, to do it in limited amounts of time, uh, beach wear, pool wear, but don't be in it all day long, because it's just adversely affecting the biomechanics of the foot, which begins the chain of injury that we've already discussed.
0: I love it. Everything you say is so fascinating. I could. Uh, You know, listen to you all day, but we've got to um, respect your time. So I'm only going to ask two more things and I'm going to ask them together and you can answer them uh, in the order you wish. Really important little strategies that we can do here. One, work on our core. I've been told by a personal trainer that every client that he has throughout his whole life, he always in every session gets people to work on their core and work on their glutes you 've talked earlier about you know building strength, and uh, we, you mentioned the glutes and some hamstrings and quads and stuff, so I want to hear your thoughts on the importance of core work and then grip strength it 's something that I have been fascinated by recently i 've just been really getting back into you know using a grip strengthener, trying to hang from bars and things, even though it's, it 's you know the gym shut, just to try to maintain you know my grip strength because of of the importance around that. So can you speak about core work and grip strength, and then I'll let you go.
1: Okay. So core work and grip strength, two excellent topics. And there's so many in exercise. I'm I'm so happy to be going through some of these highlights of the repertoire. So core strength is important. Uh, First of all, what is the core? The core is the group of muscles that are both Visible and invisible, uh, palpable and not palpable, meaning we can touch them and, we, and then also that we can't touch them normally, uh, that are in front and in back of the spine on either side and to the right and left of the spine as well. So in front and back and to the right and left surrounding the spine that gives stability to the spine and remember the spine is not perfectly straight there there is some curves to it so homo sapiens were actually not meant to walk upright because we're not our spine is not straight because of these curves and i can't yeah. mimic it all with my hand but there's a yeah. curve up here in the neck yep and there's a curve back here in the low back and the whole point is that the balance point Of force of balance should come straight down, even though there's a curve. So core strengthening requires two things. One, flexibility, and two, isolating those muscles that we talked about so that they're stimulated and not weakened. Activities that weaken the core are being on our glutes all day long which is the number one health nemesis of Western civilization. Uh, Sitting, number one health risk now, number one. Surpassing smoking. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So um, in this age of technology, in this age of office work, although now we've been moved out of the office, perhaps to our homes, but let's not be sitting at home the whole time take breaks, movement, stretch. But for the core and for any exercise, you can do static, meaning you can strengthen it without moving, or you can do dynamic strengthening. So there's static core work, and then there's dynamic core. Let's talk about static core real quick. If I have an injury and I cannot move my spine, and I'm talking about if I have pain, if I have a tendonitis, if I have a disc problem, if I have sciatica, uh, which is a pinched nerve, usually in the low back at one of the lumbar levels. Uh, if I have those kind of situations and they're telling me my core is weak and I have to strengthen my core, well, what kind of exercise can I do that won't aggravate the injury or the pain or the pinched nerve? We we can do static core, which would be things like uh, laying down prone on a mat or on a floor, and doing a plank type of exercise. And you can Google what kind of planks. You can put your arms like in a V, yep. or you put your hands straighter like this, and the whole point there is don't jam up your shoulders or your elbows but but whether you're in a v or like this you're going to keep your back straight and off the floor on the backs of your feet and you're going to you're not going to move and you're going to do this timed and you're going to do plank core if you can only do 5 seconds you do 5 seconds if you can do 10 seconds you do 10 seconds and we build it up. So, and we build it up in intervals. Like any other exercise, we do intervals. We do the exercise and we rest for a period of time. So if you did it 10 seconds, maybe you rest 20 and you do eight to 10 and that's one cycle. Okay. And then we do it again. And over time, we want to be able to do this so that you're between 30 and 60 seconds per, per time of core, and you will sweat. You're doing isometric core strengthening, meaning your body is not sitting up, doing a sit-up. Yeah. You're not hurting your low back. You're straight, but yet we're using the core. So once we have that down, then you can do isometric core Exercises face up, where we exhale through our mouth, take a nice deep breath in, blow it out through our mouth, and simultaneously, the belly button is sucked in. We're laying up. And now, without releasing the belly button, we lift one leg a few inches straight and back down, and up and back down, and up. up, and back down. And we do that eight to 10 times. And then you want to breathe. So yes, you're going to breathe and you do the opposite side. So that will, that kind of core strengthening is now dynamic, but you're not moving the spine up and back and forth. Those two things you can do with a back injury with sciatica. Right. You could also sit on a ball and balance and now you're engaging the core and you can do light exercises of the arms, either with barbells or with bands and do bicep curls mm. or overhead. And at the same time, you're engaging the core. So that's a static core, but it's a complex exercise on a ball, but not doesn't take a lot of equipment, a ball and some light weights, or a ball and bands. Remember, I said we should invest in bands and a little light set of weights Mm -hmm. for home exercise. Mm -hmm. Okay, so those are static core strengthening, you know, doing crunches, doing abs. Yes, you can do that, but it's important to do it properly, to breathe, to suck in the belly button, and to do it with a good biomechanical fashion, which means that when you're doing it, you're not creating pain in the low back. If you're getting pain in the low back, you're doing something wrong. Get a trainer, and stop and don't injure yourself. Mm.
0: Yeah, love it. Uh, Just is it satisfactory if you were to just do the planks? I mean, if you got really good at planks, you're probably going to have a pretty good core, right? Just by doing that. Correct.
1: You'll have you'll have a phenomenal core. You'll have a phenomenal core. And you know the thing with grip strength. So, as a rheumatologist, we were taught to check grip strength, mostly, but not for the reason we're speaking about. That that was to assess rheumatoid arthritis, inflammation effect, chronic synovitis effect in the wrist and and the tendons and musculature of the hand. What we're talking about grip strength assessment is as a health assessment. What is it about grip strength um, that uh, intrigues us. Why are we even talking about it? And again, this is not commonly known by physicians. It's mind-boggling to me. It's as important as a blood pressure. May, again, maybe more important. And since it's exercise, it's in one A importance. Grip strength has been likened to a easy, cheap version of assessment of lifespan. Lifespan. Yeah. Uh, it has been um, likened to the ability to recover from serious illness, or you know, trauma or uh, serious surgery. That's how important grip strength is. You know, we strengthen our grip through normal exercises that involve the upper body, but you can also do specific grip specific exercises that will strengthen the forearm as well as the interosseous muscles of the hand so bands to separate mm. and in martial arts uh, there's a lot of that uh you know for power in, in the distal in, in the tips of the of the digits in claw strikes in uh, palm heel strikes which is mostly you know, the area which you don't want to hit with with the carpal tunnel. (laughs) But I'm going to say that one of the key things of strength in the hand is to make sure we don't lose flexibility and mobility. So besides strengthening, doing, for example, um, grip, grippers, and besides bands, besides those things, that flexibility Mm. and being able to Bend the hand back and the fingers back and hold it without injury is important for strength. So flexibility is important for strength any place in the body, and it holds true in the hand. So keep your hands and digits flexible, Yeah, and that improves strength as well as when doing exercises for isometric strength in grip.
0: Mm. Fascinating that thank you i hope everyone goes out there and uh, works on those um, aspects of their physical body the way that you've described as you said everyone's in a different sort of circumstances and may need to speak to someone who can give them some advice but you know what we've learned from you today is that we all should be moving our body as the a1 Uh, priority in our life for longevity, for reduction of all these other potential conditions and that uh, there's so much that we can do and get a lot of enjoyment about the way we move our body. Uh, You've been doing it all your life. You obviously uh, love it. You're passionate about it and it comes across and uh, therefore you're such a great teacher on this topic and we could go further. I had some more questions, but I want to respect your time. We've we've had you here a little over an hour, so I just want to say thank you and can you remind us again, if someone wants to reach out to you and get some uh, a consultation from you, how to contact
1: you? Sure, Clint. Thank you for that. Um, so in Miami, uh, theoasisinstitute.com, uh, www.theoasisinstitute.com or 305-682-8471 is the direct number. That we can go ahead and the staff will be happy to assist you in making a consultation.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, members of Rheumatoid Support and Rheumatoid Solutions, you'll have the pleasure of being uh, able to ask Dr. Muniz your personal questions in the chat bar. Uh, He's joining us on a webinar shortly. So make sure you uh, join us on that if you're part of one of those groups. Thanks again, Dr. Muniz. It's been an absolute pleasure. Clem,
1: thank you so much. Always a privilege. And lots of fun conversing with you. And it seems like time just flies every time we do this.
0: Thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com.